0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Carissa Nitchi, and we're so glad you can join us. Since our last edition of Brussels Sprouts, protests in Russia in support of Alexei Navalny have intensified. So today we have the great privilege of sitting down with Joshua Yaffa to discuss recent developments with the protests in Russia. For those listeners who don't know Joshua, Joshua Yaffa is a Moscow correspondent for The New Yorker and the author of Between Two Fires Truth, Ambition, and Compromise in Putin's Russia. He has also written for The Economist, The New York Times Magazine, National Geographic, Bloomberg Businessweek, The New Republic, and Foreign Affairs. For his work in Russia, he has been named a fellow at New America, a recipient of the American Academy's Berlin Prize, and a finalist for the Livingston Award. Joshua, thanks for joining us on the podcast.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: So since this has all been moving pretty quickly, I'm going to start with just a disclaimer for our listeners. Um, This episode is being recorded on Monday, February 1st. Um, It will be released on Friday. So anything that happens between now and then, um, you know, we are not clairvoyant, can't read all of the tea leaves. So um, bear with us on that to all of our Brussels sprouts listeners. But let's jump right in. Um, First, could you walk us through how we got to this point in the protest? Give us a little bit of a brief history of how and why they originated.
1: Sure. Uh, I don't know where exactly uh, to begin. On the the one hand, the immediate trigger uh, was the poisoning, apparently by the chemical uh, nerve agent Novichok, this August of Alexei uh, Navalny, which set in motion the events that lead up uh, to the present protest. You could start much earlier with Navalny's appearance on the political scene, first as an anti-corruption activist, a blogger, as he's uh, derisively uh, called by various Kremlin officials and people on state media, he's certainly eclipsed the role of a blogger many times over at this point, but he indeed did begin his um, activism career, um, uh, among other things, using his blog, quite popular blog, to call out um, incidents and and, um, episodes of corruption, especially those surrounding the state and state corporations. And he used that reputation to build a political profile for himself and became I think, undeniably or objectively, the country's most high-profile political opposition figure, the one figure who could galvanize attention and support. And even if he never uh, became a kind of universally uh, popular figure, uh, various independent polling still suggests his support level hovers somewhere in the 20% range, though it's, of course, difficult to impossible to get a sense of what public opinion um, on politics is in a system like Russia's, given just the way the state dominates the media sphere, the political sphere, and so on. But nonetheless, whatever his popularity rating has been or or is, he's a unique figure in the sense that he's just about the only um, opposition figure who can galvanize not just protests in Moscow, but but around the country. We saw protests in recent weeks in over 100 cities in Russia. So he has played this very unique role as uh, the Kremlin's chief kind of bête noir and and, um, chief uh, opponent, even if the Kremlin didn't deign to see him that way or admit that, in fact, they were engaged in a political contest with Navalny. Um, It has been that way for uh, some time and and to varying degrees and at various points, Navalny has presented more or less an immediate threat or challenge to uh, the Kremlin's rule. All of that leads up to this summer when Navalny fell ill on a flight from Siberia, headed back to Moscow, that flight made an emergency landing. Navalny was kept at the Russian hospital uh, in Omsk, a city in Siberia, for some days. Finally, allowed uh, to be medically evacuated to Berlin, where doctors and specialists in Germany and around Europe uh, diagnosed him with uh, him with having been poisoned by Novichok, the military-grade nerve agent produced first in the Soviet Union and then. In Russia, which immediately suggested uh, the involvement of Russian state um, organs and and individuals, perhaps or most likely at a at a very high level. Navalny uh, to, has throughout his political career, and especially in the last months, displayed a really unique ability to drive the narrative, to be very good uh, with media, to be very good with memes, uh, among other things. I think it'd be fair to call Navalny the country's. Premier investigative journalist who's become very good at releasing investigations on youtube and from germany He released a series investigation of investigations that documented Who most likely was behind uh, his poisoning by novichok and fsb squad? Um, And and he even went so far as to call one of the members of this FSB squad and got this person to essentially admit uh, to the whole plot. It was a remarkable Uh, Moment of um, the investigation and a remarkable moment of video when Navalny then released it on YouTube. So that brings us up until just about the moment when Navalny returned uh, to Russia. All along, from the moment he survived the Novichok poisoning and ended up in Berlin, he said he was planning on returning to Russia. He sees himself as a Russian uh, political figure, Um, and uh, as he's explained, and we should, I suppose, take him at his word. He never considered uh, exile or saw that as an option for himself. And so when the opportunity arose or when the moment that he saw fit came, um, he got on a plane and flew back uh, to Moscow where he was arrested at the airport, uh, has been held in jail uh, ever since. Uh, The the charges that he immediately faces or, or that are keeping him in jail at the moment connect to an old politically motivated fraud case from 2014 Navalny was found guilty, was given what in Russian is known as a suspended sentence, essentially a kind of probation. And in a very interesting legalistic sleight of hand, the Russian prison service has said Navalny violated that probation by not reporting in uh, to custodial authorities regularly when he was in Berlin recuperating from his Novichok poisoning. So formally, um, as of right now, Navalny is in jail for what you might call uh, probation violations, with the court asking that his conditional or suspended sentence be turned into a real one, and he is sent to prison for some uh, period of time that I think we may know by the time this podcast comes out. Um, uh, 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 The court hearing in that case should happen on the 2nd of February, and if it's all over in a day, as some suspect it might be, we'll know by the time this podcast comes out, have the Russian authorities decided to uh, indeed send Navalny to prison for some period of time, or have they backed down, at least in the immediate term, looking for some kind of um, conciliatory or, or middle path, hoping to buy themselves a bit more time and release him, say on something like house arrest. So um, we're in the frustrating position of not knowing the answer to that now, but uh, the answer will be clear by the time people hear this podcast.
0: So kind of as a follow-up to that, I mean, how should we be thinking about this specific moment in Russian history with these particular protests? I mean, how do how does the nature of the protests really differ from all of the protests that were popping up, you know, in last August, late last year, um, or excuse me, last autumn and late last year um, in the Far East? Is the nature of this protest, you know, inherently different than those?
1: Sure. Um, I think there are some important differences between, say, the pretty widespread, um, at least within Moscow, uh, uh, protests in the capital in the summer of 2019. Those protests were connected to um, uh, widespread allegations of of fraud and um, essentially uh, denial of of democratic participation surrounding the Moscow City Council elections. Uh, A number of independent opposition candidates were kept off the ballot, and that prompted weeks if not months of protest in moscow but that was really a moscow issue because it was about the moscow city council elections uh the protests in the far east in the city of khabarovsk from earlier the summer were really about issues relevant to khabarovsk namely the arrest of the uh, popular governor there um, who was not from the pro-kremlin party we should say not actually a, a, a real kind of strident oppositionist, not a Navalny figure at all, person from inside the system, but just not as loyal, perhaps, as the Kremlin would have liked. This person was arrested and brought back to Moscow and put on trial, and that uh, sparked protest in the city of Khabarovsk, but again, uh, pertaining to issues relevant to that uh, city and the concerns of citizens there. So what's new um, and interesting and important here is the nationwide nature of the current protests, not just Moscow, not just St. Petersburg, over a hundred cities across Russia have seen protest activity in the past couple of weeks. And they're all uh, while, each of these protests may take on a local character and people may use them as a vehicle and platform for expressing local grievances, they're still united around a nationwide um, kind of call to action, a nationwide sense of um, grievance, and uh, the headline issues of these protests, uh, rule of law, uh, anti-corruption and so on uh, are are shared and and uh, unite the protesters in in uh, these dozens or over a hundred cities across Russia. And I think that's an, a new development and and one that for the Kremlin must certainly be worrying uh, because before up until now a kind of divide and uh, conquer politics has worked very well for the Kremlin, being able to split the opposition at times within itself, being able to play off a city-rural divide and to make sure that various um, protests that do crop up from time to time uh, retain their local character. Protests say about garbage dumps. There's been a lot of protests in recent years where residents of one city or another um, come out and to demonstrate against the building or creation of a garbage dump in their city. Um, Protests that become very political but that don't link up with protests uh, in other places around the country, and here we're seeing from the very beginning that kind of uh, nationwide structure and that nationwide uh, sense of unity that that has been lacking at the uh, protests we've seen in recent years.
0: So, given that widespread nature of the protests, and also you know a slightly different character that they are more anti-regime in nature, um, you know dealing with these larger rule of law questions. Um, I mean, do you think this is a flashpoint in Russia? What does this portend for the long-term viability of the Putin regime? I mean, if we look to political science research, we're really seeing that protests are now more likely to unseat dictators than coups. So do you think that this represents some kind of flashpoint? If you were reading the tea leaves, what do you think this says for Putin's regime?
1: I mean, it's such a cop-out answer that I feel is, um, uh, kind of will be disappointing for you and your listeners, but it's the only honest one I I know, which is, you know, maybe, maybe not, um, I, I'm hesitant to write, you know, Putin's political obituary too soon or the P- Putin system's political obituary too soon because we've seen so many moments that seemed like real crisis or were real crisis, in fact, for the system. And, and, uh, the system's viability was at stake, and or at least under question. And, and, and people raised very sensible and, and correct um, uh, you know, questions about how the system could survive this or that crisis. And you know, did the the structure or the nature of the system, what held it together for so long, was changing uh in, in important ways. And so could the system continue to survive with those changes? And somehow it has. Somehow Putin has managed to hang on and and be president 21 years after he first took the office uh, of of president or inherited it from Boris Yeltsin. So I think uh, we should be wary of noting or declaring that this or that moment represents some kind of sea change that things will never be the same in Russian politics. Things have managed to stay the same in Russian politics for for 20 years and it's quite possible they could stay um, this way for for another decade or or, uh, longer. But on the flip side, they could also change very quickly. Uh, I think the ins- the collapse of the Soviet Union is an instructive case study here. That in the months leading up to the collapse of the Soviet system, while everyone understood its internal weaknesses and contradictions, it had been around for so long and had managed to s- survive for so long that no one really thought it was on the verge of actual final collapse until, of course, it did seemingly without warning, shocking everyone. And I think. Um, you know, while there are lots of factors and reasons that make that comparison inelegant or or inexact, it's nonetheless instructive because the Putin system could survive a whole lot longer with its internal weaknesses and contradictions, or it could actually somehow collapse in a flash tomorrow. And I wouldn't be entirely shocked by that either, even though I certainly wouldn't bet on it. Um, I think that the system still has a lot of legs left in it. That doesn't necessarily say anything. Kind of good or promising for the Russian people or for the country. I think the trajectory is pretty clear that as the system ages, it becomes less nimble, less flexible, more likely to lash out, more likely to use repressive measures. It no longer is as um, clever as it used to be, able to um, use both the carrot and the stick, and really had the carrot to offer to a lot of people. It was it was able to use um, For example, you know the the um, spillover effects from great oil wealth to uh, essentially buy off the middle class with increased standard of living and provide great opportunities um, for all sorts of uh, ambitious and capable, talented people. Um, As the carrot the Kremlin has becomes to be less and less, and as the Kremlin becomes more um, paranoid and certainly more nervous about the ground shifting underneath its feet, it looks to the stick more and more, uh, that doesn't necessarily, or rather, that doesn't say anything good about kind of the, the future uh, of the country in the near term, but that's not the same thing as saying the system, you know, is so unstable unstable or um, impossible of continuation that it, you know, is, is on its last uh, last legs. Uh, I, I think that's premature judgment.
0: On this more repressive um techniques that we've seen um, in the last couple of days, honestly, and more of those sticks being used. Um, One of our listeners, Will McHenry, submitted a question um, regarding those increased levels of repression. And he asks, um, how are increased levels of repression being perceived by the broader Russian public? I mean, what? how are they viewing this in the, you know, either grand scheme of the future of the Kremlin, but also just their day-to-day lives?
1: I think the increased use of force we're seeing, especially at this last weekend's round of protest. um, It's a dangerous instrument for the Kremlin to rely on. So far, they seem to have the loyalty um, of the police around the country. It seems like there's no problem in getting the police to act harshly with demonstrators if those are the orders. But I think that there's an awareness here from Belarus most recently where um, protests continue after um, kicking off this, this summer, but we're particularly acute in the summer and fall, that police brutality can be the kind of thing that radicalizes the population and brings the population out into the streets in ever greater numbers, even more than those who were initially aggrieved by political issues. If they see their children, their neighbors, their family members being abused by the police, that's something that can really um, create a protest movement, or create a much bigger protest movement than you had initially. And I think the Kremlin is aware of that, and is, for now, not giving the order to be completely kind of uh, single-handedly reliant on force and brutal force to uh, scare the protesters into submission, or 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 to sort um, of wrestle them um, into submission right here, um, right now. But that creates a conundrum for the Kremlin. Either they use a degree of force that risks making the protest larger or they hold off and allow the protests to continue. Who knows, right? In Belarus, there are protests going on six months after uh, they started. I don't think the Kremlin likes that scenario at all. So it's a bit of a catch um, 22, but we have seen signs that um, force by police is met not only with outrage among the public, but also um We're seeing in in isolated instances protesters fight back, um, which we hadn't seen in earlier protests before. To your question from the beginning of the conversation, what's new about these protests? We're seeing a degree um, or willingness to stand up to the police, including with physical force or counter force of a kind we haven't seen in Russia before. And I think that's also quite worrying for the authorities. That said, uh, on the streets, the police. have the upper hand when it comes to uh, force and the ability to deploy it. And I saw myself in Moscow that protesters for completely understandable human r- reasons um, are doing their best to avoid uh, the wooden baton uh, of the riot police. And and so there is a degree to which the use of force or the threat of use of force on the part um, of the government can have the effect of in, in part scaring people um, perhaps from participating or from participating in a less confrontational way. But at the other hand, you can provoke others into action. So it's a real um, Pandora's box that I'm not sure the Russian government wants fully to open just yet.
0: Another dynamic of these protests that I always find very interesting in authoritarian regimes is what's going on with regime insiders. So, you know, what is your sense of how the oligarchs are reacting to this, how Putin loyalists are thinking about this? You know, is there any evidence um, of concern among some of the elites or any evidence of elite infighting that's currently happening um, surrounding these protests?
1: certainly have seen, but just like you've seen for years, commentary from various um, political scientists, other observers saying, could this be the moment when Putin no longer looks like the guarantor of stability for the elite, right? That's the bargain or the attraction that he has um, presented to the elite for so many years. Oligarchs who, to a large extent, owe their wealth to him, the Sylvaki high-ranking officials from the security services, these are all people who depend on Putin's uh, rule and his authority and see in him a guarantor of stability and therefore their own continued good fortune. Could there come a moment when in fact um, the opposite is true that Putin's continued uh, presence that his um, continuing to stay in the role of president is actually the thing that creates further instability and that a different figure or a different configuration of power would guarantee the interests of these figures more I don't think that moment has arrived yet, but that's one that people are beginning to to wonder about. If these protests continue, if uh, the the streets don't quiet anytime soon, if there are sanctions imposed, uh, new sanctions imposed from the West, you know, could that be the kind of thing that triggers certain people in the Kremlin and around it to wonder, hey, this guy Putin is actually messing with our, you know, the good thing we had going here, um, that we are better off somehow. Um, swapping uh, him out, or, or coming up with some other arrangement of power, so as to preserve our interest—that's that's a very compelling hypothetical scenario, and it may, in fact, descend one day. Could be soon, but I think we should be clear-eyed in saying there's no evidence that that is the case at the current moment. We don't see any signs of insiders from either inside the Kremlin governing apparatus from. The oligarchy, people close to Putin, um, other powerful business or political interests in the country, we haven't seen a single sign of a significant split um, from the system. And in fact, earlier crises show that sometimes the greater the pressure, the greater the sense of crisis, the closer these figures grow to Putin. After 2014, the standoff over Ukraine, uh, a series of Western sanctions were imposed on the country, including sanctions against high ranking or rather powerful business figures close to Putin, those business figures grew all the more close to Putin because they were shut off from their accounts and other business and financial opportunities in the West. They had no other trough at which to feed, essentially, other than um, at home uh, by growing ever more close and ever more loyal to Putin. So it's not really clear what sort of effect even something like increased sanctions um, would have. It's possible that further isolation and further crisis rather than spurring these figures to break with Putin draws them uh, even all the more close.
0: Kind of on that same note, that's actually a perfect segue um, to where I'd like to take the conversation a little bit on the future of U.S.-Russia policy in the next administration as well as responses to the protests. Um, You know, Secretary Blinken today mentioned that it was a mistake for Moscow to try and allege U.S. interference and anti-corruption protests in Russia. Um, You know, he condemned the arrest of thousands of peaceful protesters. Um, Kind of two questions here. Sort of one, um, what do you think, you know, do you think that that was the right U.S. strategy? How do you think that the U.S. should be responding to and reacting to these protests? And then um, you know, kind of secondarily, based on that strong statement, plus, you know, what seemed to be a doozy of a Biden-Putin call um, last week, sort of what do you think is the Kremlin's point of view right now on, you know, some of those statements coming out of the United States?
1: Sure. I don't think I'm going to have anything all that helpful or interesting to say about what the U.S., uh, policy should be um, toward russia one of the pleasures of being a journalist is to not have to um, think up or solve other people's um, policy problems but rather write about them and diagnose their um, failings once they're made that's um, uh, the um, yeah the uh, privilege of, of being a journalist rather than um, being in the hothouse of the um, white house or washington politics which i um, enjoy so i, I don't um, uh, have my own slate of policy prescriptions let the professionals come up with them, and then let's judge their uh, results. Uh, this current crisis certainly doesn't herald anything good for U.S.-Russian relations, but we should also admit it's not like they looked all that rosy, optimistic, or productive uh, before uh, Navalny's arrest and the protest in Russia. Uh, by the end of the Trump era, the Kremlin was thoroughly discouraged in anything positive or productive coming out of relations with the U.S. I mean, We don't have to go through the whole story of uh kremlin's changing attitudes toward uh trump euphoria to disappointment but certainly by uh the end there' was a feeling that if this u.s president can't deliver anything positive as the kremlin sees it uh in in terms of u.s russia relations well then who can i mean it's just it's just a lost cause very little um self-reflection in moscow there, there, you know, there's not a lot of officials or politicians who think about well, what was it that Russia did to uh, end up in this position? Or what did Russia do to spoil relations with the U.S. so severely? There isn't that introspection. Instead, there's a feeling of inevitability that, okay, I guess we really learned now after Trump, if Trump even couldn't fix this relationship and give us what we want, then it's just useless. The U.S. is somehow intrinsically set against us. There's just too much inertia and momentum there. Uh, to keep the relationship um, on a sour or negative note. And so I don't think you really see a lot of people in Moscow trying or think that it's worth trying to do anything all that productive with U.S.-Russian relations. They've sort of settled in for the medium haul uh, of having a pretty contentious relationship. And so I'm not sure that statements or even sanctions potentially will scare the Kremlin straight, will kind of get their attention in a new way. I think that they've adapted and made peace with the status quo in which US-Russian relations are frankly in the dumpster. Again, they don't necessarily think about, you know, why is that the case? What, could, what did Russia do to provoke that situation? But nonetheless, that's the situation that they've learned to live in. Um, and uh, I don't think are going to expend a lot of energy to try and Undo or overcome, and so if the Navalny crisis and protest leads to an even worse and more tense U.S. Russian relationship, well then, so be it. I feel like the Kremlin was half expecting that anyway. So say love you.
0: What is your sense of these claims that the U? This is you know ex, these are examples of U.S. interference um, in anti-corruption protests. Kind of the general. Putin narrative of antagonism towards the U.S. and U.S. involvement in Russian affairs, how much do those kinds of claims resonate with the Russian people? I mean, are you seeing those kind of pick up steam as explanations for what's going on, or um, is there some um, reluctance or hesitation to accept that as what's happening?
1: Those sorts of narratives definitely are displaying diminishing returns that after 2014, at what now I think we can say is the peak of the standoff with the West, the annexation of Crimea had just happened. The war in Eastern Ukraine was ongoing. Western sanctions were just being implemented against Russia. There you saw a real rally around the flag effect and Russian propaganda, especially through state media, was very effective at creating the image of the West as an enemy, especially the United States, forces that wanted to undermine and weaken Russia. And you saw in polling that those messages really resonated And there was a patriotic boost, certainly in Putin's own popularity, but that was also explained if you looked deeper or further into the polling, that it wasn't just Putin himself was becoming popular, but America and the West becoming more unpopular. So those two things were working in tandem. That moment has really passed. The post Crimea euphoria is many, many years at this point over. Um, and the issues that Navalny has raised through Uh, his anti-corruption investigations over the years through his latest video investigation, which we haven't mentioned uh, Putin's palace into um, a a large uh, billion dollar allegedly residence uh, built by oligarchs close to Putin on the shores of the black sea, that those issues are resonating with people in a way that doesn't really, or can't really be defeated or counteracted by saying, you know, the U S is to blame the West Is to blame. It's not that you know every single Russian across the country is is outraged by the Putin's Palace documentary or by Navalny's poisoning by Novichok. I think that um, to a large extent, the kind of the middle constituency of people who are apolitical and apathetic is still the largest constituency in Russia. But nonetheless, whether you're part of that apathetic majority or part of uh, the growing uh, plurality of, of uh, or, or growing uh, minority, I guess, at this point, people who are, you know, in the streets, um, even if not in the streets, kind of uh, aggrieved uh, by um, what Navalny has been saying, or, or or motivated by what Navalny has been saying, um, uh, that the anti-Western or anti-American message isn't really resonating. That seems to be falling on deaf ears this time, and, and is definitely yielding diminishing returns. And I I don't really see that yet being a huge factor in these protests. I think what's keeping people from supporting Navalny from going out into the streets, is much more this kind of learned habit of political disengagement, uh, passivity, apathy, rather than anti-Western sentiment.
0: One question that came um, through from a listener is kind of along these same lines, and this might verge a little too much on the policy prescription line of things, um, but I would be really curious your take on this as someone who is in Moscow and, you know, talking to Russians more than your average American or your average American policymaker. Um, But a listener mentioned that a lot of Russia watchers in the United States, constantly and endlessly talk about Russia's weaknesses, whether that's you know technological catch up, demographic decline, economic stagnation, dependence on oil. Um, but he points out that this is in some cases a reason that Putin does have support among um, you know Russian citizens. That that's exactly why they argue for a strong Putin. Um, how do Americans? Um, how should they be convincing Russians that it's not always an attempt to exploit Russia's weaknesses, um, but it really is an attempt to grow Russian democracy? You know, how can Americans be earnest about that? And um, American policymakers in particular, if they had to give a message to the people of Russia, how should they frame something like that?
1: I hadn't thought about that question in in the terms of strategic communications, the way that um, you and your your listener phrased it. I think, for starters, if the U.S. administration wants to go down this path, in other words, using sanctions or other uh, tools to try and essentially coerce, if that's what sanctions are, what sanctions meant to do, coerce the Kremlin into this or that uh, political or policy decision, then they could start by listening first and foremost to what Navalny and his team are saying. Uh, Navalny and his team have not called on the West to cancel the Nord Stream 2 uh, gas pipeline running from Russia uh, to Germany. Navalny and his team have not called on the West and the United States for sectoral sanctions on wide swaths of the Russian economy to cut Russia off from the swift banking systems, one notion being um, discussed in the context of uh, Ukraine, and Crimea, and, and, and the aftermath, what Russia and his, what Navalny and his team are asking for are very concrete individual sanctions against particular uh, people who are part of the security apparatus in Russia, um, especially oligarchs who have benefited from their proximity to Putin and from their proximity to the Kremlin, and have then taken uh, their billions and. Either spent them or invested them. Invested them in the West, buying up real estate, buying up uh, soccer clubs, buying up um, other uh, business uh, and investment properties. Navalny and his team are pretty clear that that they think the West should focus its attention on individuals who have benefited from their proximity to the Putin system, rather than taking on kind of whole sectors of the Russian economy um, or the Russian state. I don't really have an opinion. I'm not weighing in on, you know, whether that's a good policy or a bad one, or um, uh, you know, what the right kind of policy response should be. But that's certainly out there. In other words, the message is clear. If if a U.S. administration decides it wants to listen to it, Navalny himself and people from his camp have been pretty um, unambiguous in terms of what they ask for in terms of a Western response. So I guess. It would follow that if the West wants to prove that it's really listening, uh, it could do so rather than coming up with a policy response um, that certainly earnest, smart people, I'm sure, in Washington uh, thought up. Why not actually uh, create one that's based off of what actual Russians you know, doing the actual uh, work engaged in the actual fight in Russia are saying would be useful for them?
0: Excellent. And just to close us out, a final question for you. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about how um, we can look at the protests happening in Russia now through the lens of your book, um, Between Two Fires. You know, how can we be thinking about these protests in the context of trade-offs from everyday people in Russia um, living in the regime?
1: Sure. You know, the book was about the way that people with very understandable, earnest, genuine motives, sooner or later realize that the only path toward realizing those goals was through some kind of cooperation with the state and, and have to test and discover for themselves what kind of compromises they're willing to make and, and where do they draw the line and what kind of compromises are they not willing to make and, and what price are they willing to pay? And as the, Putin's system has advanced in its age. And we've talked about this already in our conversation today, and it's become more inflexible and uh, and also more aggressive. That window for compromise is narrowing. It's becoming harder and harder for people to make the kind of compromises that actually made the Putin system so stable. You have to uh, give up much more. the The bar is being raised in terms of the degree of loyalty that is expected of you. It's much harder to have one foot in and one foot out, which so many people did uh, throughout the 20 years of Putin's uh, reign uh, so far. You had people who were able to benefit from the system, not really join it, be critical but loyal when it mattered, um, and the carrot, as it were, was really attractive. Um, the carrot, as we've talked about, is becoming less and less, and the stick is becoming um, kind of more frequently used and and with much more um, bite and more is expected of you in terms of uh, loyalty. So that window of compromise is is narrowing um, and and narrowing to a point that may in the end uh, make the system less stable because in its early years, the Putin system had a kind of big tent quality to it. You could be an experimental Avant-garde theater director and somehow exist inside the putin system you could even be a historian who researched the crimes of stalinism in the gulag and find a place for yourself in the big tent um, Of the putin system that's no longer possible those kinds of figures are now on the outs and being seen as enemies to the putin system and so As that space for compromise shrinks and the number of people who can find um, a place for themselves inside the system also uh, shrinks you know, that's the kind of sort of thing that over the medium and long term really does make a system less durable.
0: Well, Josh, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. This has really been an incredibly comprehensive and informative, um, you know, laydown of all of the issues that we should be thinking about surrounding the protests. So we really appreciate you, you know, coming during this moment to help us understand this moment in time in Russia. So thank you so much for joining. My us. My
1: pleasure.